Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our first episode, I'll be talking to Margaret H. Willison, librarian, social media bon vivant, co-host of the Appointment Television podcast, one half of the Two Bossy Dames Media Empire, and frequent fourth chair on Pop Culture Happy Hour. We'll be discussing the magic of libraries, the metafictional masterpiece that is the monster at the end of this book, and how Margaret became the Lyra Silvertongue of the Emerald Necklace, an honorary children's bookseller, a Sunday school hustler, and the Frank Abagnale Jr. of the Boston Library Circuit. And we'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and tell you how you can become a guest on The Math of You. But now, we join this conversation already in progress. Spend a week in a dusty library some words to jump in me We met by a trick of fate French Navy, my sailor maid So, Margaret, for those who don't know you, and honestly, I can't think of anybody who doesn't, uh, tell us why you're a beautiful and unique snowflake to steal a line from Chris Haley. <laughs> I am like a librarian and then kind of internet social media socialite based in Boston. I'm involved with a number of podcasts. Famousest among them is Pop Culture Happy Hour. Most personally attached to is Appointment Television, which is the one that I run with Andrew and Catherine, who are going to be appearing on this very podcast at some point. In this very podcast. I'm one half of the burgeoning media empire called Two Bossy Dames, which is chiefly a newsletter and secondarily kind of like an internet community where we have uh, bi-monthly live tweets of wide and varied array of movies and just regular dress advising capacities. And also bringing up topics such as normalizing lady rage. Yeah. Oh, many, many different things. And cargo shorts. Though I, I don't know why cargo shorts, but... <laughs> Well, I didn't bring the thunder to Cargo Shorts. Cargo Shorts brought the thunder to me, and I just answered it. It's such a jungle sometimes. Really, it makes me wonder. <laughs> it was terrible. I did. I wrote that piece, and we sent it out on Friday, and I wrote that, which is for the people who don't subscribe to my newsletter but are listening to this. I wrote a response to a piece in the Wall Street Journal about how women hate their husband wearing cargo shorts that then caused a furor among men who hate having the bare minimum of scrutiny applied to their physical appearance that women would, like, if if all anybody, if there was, like, one garment that somebody was like, can't wear that, you look silly, I'd be like, oh, thank God, one thing. <laughs> Whereas I like to say being a woman is the opposite of eating a Reese's cup. There's no right way to do it. Where did you grow up? I'm assuming Boston, considering that you're in Boston and talk a lot about Boston. This is true. I grew up in Boston. I grew up actually in the city thereof, not in a suburb so close that when you're talking to somebody who didn't grow up around here, you're like, oh, I grew up in Boston. I grew up in a neighborhood called Jamaica Plain, so named at least reportedly because in the 1800s and 1700s, it was like where all of the sea captains had their summer houses. And they all liked to live on this one pond, Jamaica Pond, and they would drink their Jamaica or their rum, plain or straight up. And so like, that's how the neighborhood got its name. That's probably apocryphal. I, I do approve of people of people naming places after drinks. I'm down with that. I, th- I think that's how I, mean, Man- I think that's how a Manhattan happened, right? That they, they had the drink and they're like, you know what? We always have this drink in this place. We should just call it Manhattan. <laughs> right, that or like you know, a native peoples were wiped out <laughs> so that we could have their land. Like, <laughs> one or the other. I mean, well, this is the thing: is mostly if you've got a funny name in America, it's because 
a native people we've subsequently wiped out named it in a language that is unfamiliar to English speakers, and so it sounds funny. I agree with you because considering I've come from a country where it has places like Saskatchewan and Upper Muscadelgan, and have come to a place with names like Woolloomooloo, <laughs> yeah, I think I get that. <laughs> You know, or if you're lucky, it's just like garden variety named after an alcoholic beverage or named after a city in England. Like <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, that happens so much. We, we have our own King's Cross here and it causes <laughs> I mean, no end of confusion. I don't think we have any King's Crosses or many. You know, we didn't we don't have kings here. I don't know if you guys know that. I, I, I heard that I heard there was actually like a play about it. A couple of plays, in fact. <laughs> One or two. In a snapshot, Margaret. What sort of kid were you? I was the outdoorsiest indoor kid ever. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I mean, like, I think my perfect thing was still probably reading a book. But it was definitely reading a book outside somewhere. And when I was little, I grew up in a neighborhood that has, Boston has a big public park network called the Emerald Necklace. And that was a major fixation for me as a kid. And I grew up near four and one of them is the Arnold Arboretum which is Harvard's sort of botanical gardens even though they're not particularly close to Harvard so it's just millions of beautiful plants tons and tons of different varieties and my mom was a docent there when I was little so when I was like four and five and six I would just go around the park with her and she would tour everybody and she would name all of the different plants and so I absorbed just like a ton of information and I loved it tons and tons of information about all the plants that grew around here I used to collect owl pellets which is the charming way we refer to the um, balls of regurgitated fur and bone that the owls spit out after they eat a mouse so I went to nature camp I liked very much climbing trees and knowing the name of the tree that I was climbing. But once I climbed a tree for like, I don't know, eight minutes, I probably just wanted to be at the top branch of the tree with like a Lloyd Alexander book. Ah, you see, now you're speaking my language. I read the book of three when I was probably exactly the right age to read it, like seven or eight. And then the library didn't have any more. So I had to wait until I was maybe 13 or 14 to read the rest of them, which is good because that series gets dark. Yeah, it does. (laughs) Quick. It gets dark quick. In fact, it lost me because I, unlike you, had an amazing library. And I was also in a very, like, library-dense part of Boston. Because Boston gives the illusion of being a large city exclusively by being very, very inefficient about its transportation. (laughs) It's not a big city. It's just really bad at being a small city. It's not a big city. It's just... The the roads used to be cow paths, so they take about eight times as long to get you where you were going as they ought to. And so it gives you the illusion. I'm, I'm with that because it's like you, you get this idea like when you look at aerial maps of London or like Ottawa around the, around the locks or even the harbor around Sydney where it's like there was a house here once and so the road bends like this and that house hasn't been here for a very long time but the road still bends like that. But the virtue of this is that we're like really over-libraried in my particular neighborhood. And I'm adjacent to this one sort of like pocket suburb that's in the middle of Boston called Brookline. And it's surrounded on every side by the actual city. But it was basically just like wealthy Boston Brahmins in the 1840s felt like City Hall was getting too dominated by like Irish politicians, Tammany Hall nonsense. And so they waspily withdrew 
from the city itself and set up a town in the middle of the city. They, they took their ball and went home. <laughs> yeah, and they had their own, you know, six libraries in a large neighborhood that I could also borrow from. Because if anybody in Boston or Massachusetts is listening to this podcast, you should know that as a Massachusetts state resident, you have the right to borrow from any library in the state because they all take state funding. So academic libraries, not so much, but any public library in the state, simply as a Massachusetts resident, you can borrow from there. So I could go to the two libraries in Jamaica Plain, the Rosendale Library, the main branch of the Brookline Library, or the Coolidge Corner branch, or the Putterham branch. So between those six places, everybody always had the books I wanted, even the ones that were out of print. So I could really just like pick a single author and just go to town, which is why I've read more Lloyd Alexander than most people know exists. Because <laughs> like my brother owned the book of three books outright, so I could just pick them up off his bookshelf. But then like, you know, once I'd gone through those, or rather once I'd hit Taron Wander and been like, I don't get it, and stopped reading. Because that book is very existential. Oh yeah, and the thing is, that was one of the books that I remember reading just repeatedly. Because I'm like, okay, I need to understand this. And I remember <laughs> thinking that the family that lived on luck, A, sounded awesome, and B, would never, ever work. Even then, I was a realist going, All right, but what, <laughs> what if something doesn't float down the river? Have, have you thought about that? You know, it, it, sure, it's like if, if he makes a pretty sword and it breaks, and he makes an ugly sword, but it's strong, but it's good because he made it himself. Well, he made the pretty sword too. Why is that one better? And, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well now, now that he's made both, why does he make a third sword that's pretty and good? People are like, you know, patting you on the head and going, no, no, it's, it's symbolism. And it's like, I know, but it's <laughs> dumb. <laughs> I know, but it's ineffective symbolism and the message it's communicating is wrong. And you're like, look, look, like if you're talking about the, and I get out of a chart and a whiteboard and I start like drawing boxes and arrows and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So you've actually, you, we, we've stumbled into the, the topic that you want to discuss, yes. which is the power of the library. Yeah. Specifically, we want to talk about libraries when you're a kid as being this kind of smorgasbord of what you can have. I mean, there's a very old Jerry Seinfeld bit about when you first come across the concept of Halloween as a child and you can't quite believe it. <laughs> because there, there's no way that you would just, you would go to door to door and people would just give you candy and you get to have a cool costume. It's like, <laughs> oh my God, wait, you said I can go to a building and there's a bunch of books and I can take out like up to 10 books, as many books as I can carry as a small child. And then I can read them and then I bring them back. Right? right where's yeah. the catch? Where's the, where's the problem here? Well, one of the catches, Lucas, is sometimes if you're me, you forget to bring them back for way, way too long, and then oh, you no. end up with incredible finds. So I have, like, the craziest library fugitive record in the <laughs> Boston Public Library system. I like to joke that I am to libraries what, like, Leonardo DiCaprio's character is to the FBI in Catch Me If You Can. Oh, you were you were the Frank Abagnale of Boston libraries. Exactly. <laughs> like, they just, they had to bring me into the fold so that I could help them catch library criminals because like there was no hope of ever besting my library criminology i'm just i'm just picturing like a bathtub full of like card catalog cards or like, <laughs> and you're soaking them so you can lift the date off and restamp them well the oh way the, the standard con i had for when i lost a book or had too many overdue fines to borrow something and i don't know why this worked but it did my mom and i have the same name right so I would come in and I would try and borrow something with my card and they'd be like, oh no, you've got too many fines. And I'd be like, oh, you're looking, you're looking at the wrong account. That's, that's my mother's account. 
you you want to look at the other Margaret Willison. <laughs> and and you, they're like, oh, is your mom a big Lloyd Alexander fan? And and you go, yeah, she's into it. I think someone must have just been more invested in me continuing to read than in collecting the fines and that's why I was allowed to get away with it for so long. I'm just picturing this as like a Broad City moment where it's like there is an (laughs) elaborate subterfuge that requires full commitment from Abby and Alana and a huge amount of yelling and posturing and pretending and fake identities and the person is just like just go inside just I I don't care. (laughs) Yes pretty much probably it was like that. Um, and then I would go to other towns that I could borrow at, and I would get new library cards issued for me there. And in those days, we were in like a like a dual passport stamping thing. So I could take my Brookline Public Library card, and I could get it re-registered in the Boston Public Library system, and have like a, a clean account. So oh like God, to this, this day, there are like there are like four <laughs> accounts tied to my name in the Boston Public Library system. Like my my standing is now reasonably clear. Because I'm not an adorable child anymore, so like they actually do force me to pay my fines. <laughs> also, they know where to find you, considering that you're on, you know, the New York Library podcast. <laughs> considering that I'm friends with like 60% of their staff, yeah, they definitely know where I live. But every six months or something like that, somebody would be like, your account is, do you know that you have like four accounts in the system and there's like still a ym magazine that you're being charged for on one of them and i'm like those aren't those aren't those aren't me uh that's those, actually those that, my yeah my mom loves ym magazine <laughs> She's crazy for ym magazine <laughs> loves 17 your schemes around libraries it sounds a lot like the schemes that my sister had for a publisher's clearinghouse when we would get all the cds by making up names and stuff which is i've learned it's technically fraud <laughs> So I probably shouldn't admit to that on a podcast, but hey, statute of limitations, Canadian government, you're never catching me now. <laughs> I imagine they have bigger fish to fry also. <laughs> uh, I remember specifically because my parents divorced when I was like 10, and so we would spend summers with my mom, and she lived in a small town so we could walk to the library. Clutch, man. And I would go, and I would essentially clear out their fantasy rack. Yeah. And... Uh, including The Silmarillion, which to this day I have never read, but I believe I took it out of the library four times over various summers thinking, this time I'm going to do it. And instead I would just reread the same like four Piers Anthony books of the Xanth series because those were funny and had jokes in them. Sure. And I would look at The Silmarillion and I would go, someday. I think you made the right choice, friend. Don't ever read it. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it's like, it's like now looking back, it's like, he thinking of it as, oh, yeah, you basically took out Middle Earth Bible and said, you know, one of these days I'm going to read. No, you weren't, young Lucas. <laughs> I will <laughs> tell you from the past that not only were you not going to, you probably didn't need to. <laughs> you definitely didn't need to. I've to this day never read the Lord of the Rings books, at least in part because I, when I started it at like 15, the Fellowship of the Ring, like it was a very, I'm still a very like serious-minded reader. If there are footnotes, I have to read them. And if there's a foreword, especially one like written by the author, like of course I have to read it. But it's like 17 pages about the different regions where the hobbits grow their fucking pipe weed. <laughs> no, I'm with you. I, I hate <laughs> I hate prefaces. I hate forewords. And it's funny because in The Hobbit, like I read The Hobbit when I was 12. I read it once and I loved it. To, and remembered it clearly enough that, to get angry at the new films because of how things occurred differently. I then attempted to pick up The Fellowship of the Ring, lasted through yeah, through the forward, into the first chapter, and decided, this is crap, put it back on the shelf, and never picked it up again. 
But the thing with forewords, and especially with, with both classic books and comic books, having a preface or a foreword is so much about spoilers. Yeah. Yes. And greater impacts. And I'm like, I don't need to know about how, you know, in George Bernard Shaw's Major Barbara, how it's really meant to be an indictment on organized religion within the system and greater movements in blah, 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 blah. And, and, it's like, and when this happens at the end, what it actually means, like, hey, 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 stop. I just picked this book up. It's like, you don't get to tell me about the historical impact. I will read this later. I bid you good day, George Bernard Shaw. In classic books, you are correct. The forewords are garbage. But equally, in classic novels, if you're not reading the footnotes, like, I don't even want to know you. Oh, no, the footnotes are there. Like, if you don't, if you don't need to know, like, what the Voting Rights Act of 1838 actually meant in the context of Adam Bede, like, I do not want to know you. See, that's why I love those annotated versions where they'll have the, the left-hand page be blank and just have essentially further reading on a reference. Right, right. Like, I'm all down for that. That is the, the TV tropes of my early life. <laughs> yeah, also, by the way, another reason you would love Terry Pratchett, because Terry Pratchett loves his footnotes. I do. I love an author who can deploy footnotes, especially make jokes in them. It's one of my major... I consider it the Adamsian school of footnotes. Yeah. Where it's like you'll have a footnote and then halfway through you'll have a second footnote and that, that second footnote <laughs> will be usually for a pun and then you'll go back to the first footnote and then back to the story. Yes. Anybody who uses uh, metafictional strategies for humor, they're winners. They are. Yeah, there, there's one particular one in, I think it's in one of the one of the later Terry Pratchett books where they talk about an uncharted region and how it had only been explored the once, footnote. It then describes the story of this particular explorer and how he did a bunch of primary research, secondary footnote, read a bunch of stuff that other people made up, and secondary research made his own stuff up, and then proceeded to explore. And I'm just like, this is, we're now into like four stages of footnotes. We're in dream within a dream territories <laughs> about how anecdotal sources are garbage. <laughs> my preferred, my preferred way of handling footnotes, for sure. So my parents are both big education proponents, and one of the great things that they did that was not stuffy but was very effective is they just never entirely stopped reading aloud to us. So I feel like my first experience of having something read to me that had footnotes was uh, when I was 12 and 13 and my brother was 16. My dad would read aloud to us from a book called Sophie's World. Why do I know that name? What is that name? By Yostein Garter. It was like a real big bestseller in like 1997 or whatever when it got translated from, I think it was, I think he's Norwegian. Okay. So translated from Norwegian to um, English. He's Nordic. And it's basically a history of philosophy with like light narrative applied over it. And the narrative is sort of Murakami origami nonsense where the character's inside the philosophy story are actually being written for a girl who's reading them to learn philosophy from like her professor dad but then they start to gain self-consciousness and things go amok sort of okay so so these are self-aware literary concepts and philosophical concepts that exist to teach someone listen this is fascinating very fascinating. This is like when you start to pull apart uh, the monster at the end of this book as a meta narrative breaking the fourth wall, and you realize, wow, I started that from an early age. <laughs> it's true. 
Um, the monster at the end of this book loomed large both in my childhood and then again in my adolescence because it was one of the only books I ran the Sunday school at my church, which sounds like way more wholesome than it actually is. (laughs) (laughs) What terrible things did you teach them, Margaret? I didn't teach them anything terrible, um, but I think the two things that you need to know is that, like, my neighborhood in Boston was one of the two, like, gay homesteader neighborhoods in the city, and it was the gay homesteaders with adopted children neighborhood. So it was a very, very, very liberal Episcopalian church where we were performing same-sex marriages in, like, 1991. Right on. So half the kids in the Sunday school were adopted kids of queer parents, and the main Sunday school was actually taught by, like, two very earnest, very lovely lesbians. And they would take care of the, like, verbal kids, and I just had the pre-verbal kids. And the way this worked for me is I figured out around age 12 that if I worked in the Sunday school, my parents couldn't make me go to church services, (laughs) and I got paid. Advantage Willison. So... (laughs) Um, so mostly I just read to them, but we didn't have like any Christian books. We just had, you know, like Dr. Seuss, but the one that I actually liked reading them the best was the monster at the end of this book, because it is a masterpiece of children's literature. It's exceptional. And it's super fun to read aloud. It's not, not just reading it yourself, but it's, it's fantastic as a performative book. Exactly. Because you have all those moments for the oohs and ahs and, oh, don't do it. Oh, what are you going to do? And it, and because it, it's so great, it interacts with everything <laughs> although I, I, need, I need to make a make a small point uh they re-released that book with elmo no instead of grover and i think that changes the entire tone of the book and is not as cool elmo is the worst yeah El- elmo is the poochie of sesame street i think we can say it <laughs> shots fired children's television workshop come at me lucas this is actually a great moment to mention that my incredibly liberal and permissive parents drew literally one line Uh-oh. in the sand uh-oh. And it was The Simpsons. Oh, my God. Me, too. Me, too. And in this case, I mean my mom, and I don't want to throw shade on her, but she was the one. I think she watched a couple of early episodes, and I think at the time it was running in a block with Married with Children, which she oh. found just, like, utterly repellent, mm-hmm. which I get. And the early season, it, the tonal similarities between those two things would be much more apparent than, like, the metafictional, sophisticated humor it would subsequently blossom into. And inspire books and whatever else. Yeah. But I think I think my dad was in the same way. But the problem was he had actually never watched it. He had just seen like a 60 Minutes or whatever, which portrayed that the kids were rude and disrespectful and that everything was about Bart breaking rules. Yeah. And so therefore said it would never be shown in our house. And then like, I think it was maybe like almost, gosh, like eight or nine years later when I was a teenager and he, I then showed him an episode it was the one where Homer goes to space, and he was losing his mind at all the 2001 references and how funny it was and, oh, this is so great, and trying to explain it to me, who had never seen 2001, <laughs> why it was so smart. And, and he stopped, and he's like, why haven't I been watching this for years? I'm like, yeah, Dad, me too. Why haven't have I been watching this for years? Yeah. <laughs> and it was just one of those things where it just got away from me. And, like, everybody else in the culture got that as a reference point. And now there are so many seasons. Yeah, but you can skip about the past 10 or 12 of them. (laughs) 
Oh my god, Lucas, fucking everybody always tells me that about huge fictional worlds that I'm not yet on the inside of. And like, I understand that like, if you've had the benefit of, of consuming the story, you may also have the discernment to know the parts that can get left out. That's but I true. suffer from FOMU in very, very <laughs> limited places. But FOMU is constant. <laughs> Fear of fictionally missing out, oh my constant. God. Constant. FOFMU. FOFMU. Well, here, here's the thing, though. I can tell you that you are old enough that I can give you this lesson. The best way to watch The Simpsons is to get someone to make a random assortment of episodes that are out of order and all over the place and put them, like, onto, uh, now, I suppose, a DVD or a flash drive or whatever or a Dropbox for you, and you watch them in random order because it was syndicated. And you could get anything from a late season 10 episode or like an early season 4 episode. And you get them one after the other. And because it has that look where, because of its animation, you can say, okay, it's not like I can see that, oh yeah, this is a season 5 Growing Pains episode versus a season 2 Growing Pains episode. You can look at The Simpsons and just receive it all as this like even keel of media. So I think The Simpsons as a, as a particular thing it's less, and because it can be so episodic as well as self-referential. Yeah. There's different levels that where you can like you can just take something at face value, or you can realize it's a, a sneaky reference to earlier. So I think it might be something where your your fofomo uh, can be escaped. Andrew, my TV, my appointment television co-host is working on making just like a master list of Simpsons episodes that Catherine and I need to see because both she and I somehow managed. To not watch it. I think it's because her parents were actually draconian about television being watched in the house at all. And so she had to prioritize accordingly. How did she end up at Vulture then? Christ. <laughs> well, I mean, that's basically, that's basically the story. It's just like, it's, if you limit the TV consumption of your child, what you do is you build an addict. <laughs> so everything that comes in, and this is something I've actually, I've discussed with other people. When there's a scarcity of something, like of a certain kind of media... When you get it, you pour over it. And I was like this with uh, with certain books and especially with magazines, like video game magazines, which were a rare and treasured thing because I never had a subscription. And occasionally, like, my dad would pick one up when he was buying cigarettes and be like, oh, hey, I got you an EGM or a Game Pro or something. Mm-hmm. And I would read that magazine for four months, even though I had not played 90% of the games that were in there because it was just oh, like man. this was this thing to be understood this was this gateway into stuff that I would probably never get to to see or play you know i don't think i feel like i had almost no scarcities in my life as the younger of two children from already permissive parents and we just always had like material of all kinds was around the house but even so there were things that i would just like weirdly get fixated on and i have two issues of National Geographic, and I do not know why I reread those two issues over and over and over again because we just had stacks of them in the house. This is a good moment to note that my mom for sure has hoarding tendencies and I have inherited them. I have major hoarder blood, but what this meant is that there were always books to read in the house. We have stacks and stacks of old New Yorkers in the basement, stacks and stacks of old National Geographics in the basement. And she would bring them home in boxes from thrift stores and things like that. But I had a National Geographic that was about the American chestnut. Uh, <laughs> and I still know a lot about this tree because, Lucas, it used to be so plentiful that a, a North American gray squirrel could 
go across the country and never leave its branches. That's how common it was. Okay, and on the, on the day that an esoteric topic was redefined, we all stood in wonder. <laughs> look, <laughs> look, Castionadadenta is like a very important tree to me, okay, Lucas? Don't mock. In the 1920s, some kind of blight attacked the trees. We think it may have come over in a shipment of furniture from Asia. And it hasn't wiped them out altogether. They can still grow, but they can only grow to the point that their bark starts to split, and then they die. So you can still see, like, very young American chestnut trees in forests, and you can identify them, but they never get to full height. And all of our chestnuts are imported from other countries, which is why we rarely have chestnuts open on a roasting fire. I can just look forward to your think piece on the American chestnut as a metaphor for, um, let's see, what could it be? Could it be politics? Could American manufacturing. Millennials. No, no, millennials. Millennials. There you go. Sure. <laughs> but I don't know why, Lucas. I don't know why American chestnuts happens to be the, like, two issues of the National Geographic I read over and over again. But clearly it made an impression. See, when, when my mom was going to university, uh, she was boarding with uh, an elderly lady in Montreal and she had a basement that had floor-to-ceiling shelves with literally 50 years of National Geographics, including, I remember, there was like a holographic one for the 50-year anniversary. Yes. And uh, what I would do as a a nine-year-old is I would go around and, like, look through the spines and look for something that had the name of an animal or something about a dinosaur. And I would then pull that down and... and read that one article and then to the horror of my now adult self I would put it back wherever I could fit it (laughs) and I'm I'm just imagining this woman going down and looking and being like being able to tell there was a disturbance in the force as she walked into the room and like sort of reach her hand out without looking and go something's wrong (laughs) no it's off Did you have any, did you have school projects that made a huge impression on you? I can recall doing some, like I remember having to, like we had to talk about, there was one, God, they're so specific, where we had to like each pick a dog breed. Yes. And like go and research them. Things like that. And stuff, and I remember. What was your dog breed? Oh God, there was actually two. I, I can remember <laughs> two different projects at two different schools. Uh, that's the benefit of having moved more than once a year for your entire young life is that you occasionally get repeats. I had to do one on the Beagle and I had to do one on Rottweilers, which was super easy because we had Rottweilers growing up. So my dad had a bunch of books on them. <laughs> uh, but the Beagle one, I we had one magazine that had one picture of a Beagle and the rest of it I had to do using our Funkin' Wagnalls encyclopedia, <laughs> which my mom dutifully collected through stamps at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. And... Also, the great book series, which helped me greatly in university and high school. Like, I did a report on the Iliad with the Funkin' Wagnalls collected great books things. Yeah, it was very important. But yeah, I had to do that for, for Rottweilers and for Beagles. And I found mm-hmm. out that Beagles used to be used to hunt leopards, which impressed the hell out of Kid Lucas. Yeah. I mean, correct, Kid Lucas. So what was your... Did you have to do that one? No. I never had to do... I had the inverse thing. So I was at one school for seven years... And my older brother had also gone there. And it was a small school. For the first five years, there were 24 kids in my grade. And then for the next uh, two years, there were 32. So I knew everybody in my elementary school really, really well. And there would be these landmark projects that we'd have every single year. So in fourth grade, we did like a huge unit on the Middle East. And like one of the segments was like you got assigned a country. And you had to like research your country. And you had to write like a fictionalized account 
of like life in that country and then you also had to represent that country sort of like a at a fake Middle Eastern bazaar all of which oh my god was probably like <laughs> oh my god real appropriative and deeply problematic <laughs> I mean like we did do careful research I think like it wasn't this was the era where um, Disney thought it was appropriate to be like if they where they cut off your arm if they don't like your face it's barbaric but hey it's home in the Aladdin songs, oh, which they've had to change. <laughs> yes. um, so yep. it wasn't, we weren't doing like Arabian Nights. We were definitely doing, like I learned a lot about the Sunni and the Shiite <laughs> while I was studying my country of Lebanon that just, you know, ended up being like way more pertinent in my adult life than I would have necessarily expected it being. Uh-huh. But just the same, like probably like a majority white, super rich community it's not like the most tasteful thing they've ever done but i mean it was a very effective way to learn things and it's funny because one of my very so (laughs) this is a weird tangent but i'm gonna go there i'll allow it my high school is the oldest high school in america it's public but it was founded in 1635 which for our country is pretty old i guess for your country's it would be pretty old too yeah it's just in england that they think it's ridiculous which point anyways And there is another high school in the same city that was founded in like 1637 or something like that. That's a fancy all boys private school. And we have this like battle where we're the oldest high school, but they like to call themselves the oldest high school in continuous existence because they were motherfucking Tory bastards and they didn't close down during the Revolutionary War. Whereas we are the alma mater of Ben fucking Franklin, who dropped out, FYI. I graduated from a high school. Ben couldn't hack it at. I mean, that's not an accurate representation. (laughs) Ben had to withdraw because his family was super poor and so he had to go into trade and that wasn't a problem for me. But, like, it's still fun to say. (laughs) Anyways. It's funny because you say that, just before you move on, you, you say that, but there is the exact thing happening with the oldest pub in Sydney because there will be like like there's the fortune of war mm-hmm. there's the the Lord Nelson uh, which was the first brewery like officially licensed brewery so they hang on to that title right whereas the Lord Nelson will say it's the oldest pub and I think it's the uh, like the Queen, like the Queen Victoria Hotel or one of the ones down in the rocks where it's like they'll have competing signs it's like famous rays versus famous original rays right. but with beer exactly so for me i like to say that i have my oldest friend and then my oldest friend in continuous existence so my oldest friend <laughs> is my friend elizabeth who i went to elementary school with but then mostly fell out of touch with from 7th grade through around our sophomore year of college and then we became friends again And, like, we still have that sense of continued shared history, but there's, like, a dark period. Whereas my friend Marie, I became friends with in seventh grade, and she is the first person I became friends with in seventh grade that I'm still friends with today. So she's my oldest friend in continuous existence, and Elizabeth is my oldest friend. And this is pertinent because when I became friends with Marie in seventh grade, I immediately felt close to her because she was Lebanese, and I had studied Lebanon in my fourth grade Middle East project, and I felt like I knew some shit. (laughs) I didn't come up to her and be like, I wasn't like, I know some shit. But I just felt like a little bit, it was 
it wasn't like I felt like I had some kind of key to who she was, but it was more like, oh, like this was meant to be, right? Like, really? I was given, <laughs> like, getting Lebanon was a sign that Marie and I were supposed to be friends. Because, you know, we don't have, like, a huge Lebanese population in Boston. Marie has a tight-knit group of people, and, like, her neighborhood in Roslindale had a bunch of them. But it's not as major a population as, like, Vietnamese or Chinese or Haitian even. Like, most of Marie's family lives in uh, Michigan and Detroit, because that's where we have major, major populations of Middle Eastern communities. So... It's funny, actually, as you mentioned that, that in New Brunswick, where I did spend some time growing up, and then later in high school came back, there's a huge uh, Lebanese population, and it's primarily Maronite, uh, Maronite Christian, to the point where our first landlords when we moved in, uh, as well as my eventual stepmother, uh, were both from an extended Lebanese family. It it is this huge and active community in eastern Canada. Yeah, I find those kind of pockets of pockets of immigration fascinating. Very memorable school projects include the the Middle East project where I was Lebanon. In fifth grade, I had to do some kind of report on peregrine falcons. I think it was endangered species. Oh, real real talk. Peregrine falcons were my favorite animal for a long time. Oh my God, Lucas! How have we never talked about this? <laughs> They're so great. They're so cool. They go super fast. And they're tiny, but they're really powerful. And they have these stubby little wings that are basically like aerialons on a plane where like they can twitch them just one way and it changes their whole direction. Yeah. Yeah. And then in sixth grade, we did a big project. Now, this is a funny thing. I can't remember if the entire class was assigned someone related to the HUAC hearings with the Hollywood 10 and all of that stuff and the blacklisting, or if we were all given sort of different subjects from around that time, and I just ended up with that. But I had to do a report on uh, Paul Robeson, who's an actor who was blacklisted in the 1950s, and he's super, super, super interesting. There's an amazing episode of You Must Remember This. Yes, about, uh, <laughs> which was an yeah. incredibly personally affirming thing. I was disappointed that there wasn't an entire episode dedicated to him, but how prominently he featured in the episode dedicated to Lena Horne was super cool. Yeah, how cool, by the way, just just a tangent a little bit. I remember that episode where they, they had actual quotes from her as opposed yes, to yes. where there will often be um, impersonators or will have people playing those things. Like All of her talks, like to the point where I want to go and hunt them down yeah. because they're just fascinating. So cool. Um, but yeah, so those are things that I spent a lot of time with when I was a kid that I still remember. And I remember those so much better than like research papers I spent significantly more time on in college. Because <laughs> I think by that point, you've got the, the breadth of media mm-hmm. that individual media can stop being as like, even if it's not impactful, but seeming important and having that pride of place in your memory. Yes. It's just when your synapses are new, they're also more durable but my fancy elementary school was very fancy but was in one way egregious we had the world's meanest librarian oh no (laughs) and I don't even mean like mean in the way that librarians are traditionally mean being like too strict like I think she just genuinely hated children you find you find there's at least one of those in most schools and it may not be a librarian's position but it's just someone who just yeah that like you wonder how they gravitated to education like I'm just picturing Principal Snyder from Buffy yeah she was in that realm there were like large 
comfortable beanbag chairs. And so obviously there weren't enough for everyone to use them. So when you got into library class, like people would make a beeline for the chairs and she decided that people liked the chairs too much. So they were all taken away. Um, we didn't have- <laughs> How dare children be comfortable How when they, they learn? I find that offensive. Um, we weren't allowed to read Goosebumps books. <laughs> um, and I think, I think other series fiction was also banned. And this woman's real calling was not librarianship. I don't think she had an MLS. Her real calling was that in the summers, she would do summer stock on Nantucket with elaborately crafted foam puppets. Oh, my God. She Shakespeare plays with foam puppets. Oh, my God. And (laughs) she brought these foam puppets into the library, but they were just for display. But, like, we were children, Lucas, and they were foam puppets. So, obviously... (laughs) Like, someone touched them at some point, because that was genuinely inevitable. (laughs) It's going to happen. And I remember my oldest friend, Elizabeth, when we were in elementary school, was, like, very nervous and, like, a very, very scrupulous rule follower, and she never got in trouble. And I think someone touched the puppets while Elizabeth was in the room. And for some reason, Ms. Carey just laid into Elizabeth. And it was, like, the first time I'd ever seen just, like, an adult get, like, not like, I'm not angry, I'm disappointed. Not like stern or whatever, but just like foaming at the mouth. Mussolini mad. from the balcony. Like, yeah, it, like bulgy eyes, mad. Wow. And it was that like this timid, well-behaved mouse child. <laughs> <laughs> and that was when we all knew, that was when we all knew that Miss Carrie had crossed the Rubicon. Because it's like, you could yell at me. Like, I was a little shithead. And still am. <laughs> um, but Elizabeth was sacrosanct. <laughs> So I, I can imagine that this was like this was this um, this kind of island in a sea of otherwise good librarians, where it's like I'm picturing you as this like child who's ra- raised among this like network of libraries, and as you take <laughs> you take on those aspects unto yourself, where it's like uh, you, were you a chameleon, you would have book patterns appearing on your hands and feet, and then in the middle yeah. of this there is this woman, and. I, <laughs> that would seem yep. not just not not fair, but not right. I remember one of the greatest betrayals she ever did. So she, I will tell you her greatest betrayal of me individually, and then her greatest like success. So her greatest betrayal is like we would go to her and we would do readers' advisory, and she'd help us pick out books for projects. And I liked fantasy books, and I remember her being like, "Oh, you'll love this one," and it was called Afternoon of the Elves. And initially it was great because it's like two little girls and they're convinced that there are elves and they're best friends and they're like building elf islands. But then it takes a turn for the worse because there aren't actually elves, Lucas. One of the girls is just mentally ill and also has like a mom who's mentally ill who's like checked out. And so then it's this like garbage realism, (laughs) like sad, depressing story with zero elves despite the title. And I had to write a... I had to write a report on it, and I was furious. I'm just picturing this this report starting with, why, oh, why? (laughs) (laughs) There may have been afternoons, but there were insufficient elves in this text. Let me tell you something about the elves in this book, Jack. (laughs) (laughs) That was Miss Carrie's great failing. And then her great secret triumph is she is the one who gave me my first copy and this was I think when it was actually it had been published in the UK but it hadn't been published in the US but she had like a copy of The Golden Compass by Philip Oh Pullman. wow yes 
And I got it like a year before anyone in the U.S. had it. And it was the greatest. Yeah. And that remains one of my favorite books of all time. I mean, that's basically a perfect book. I just want to throw in the fact that you, you're you deeply identifying with a story of a girl living among academia, being able to run where she wishes with a yeah. shape-changing little buddy. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's, they, they, yeah. they had your a number, Margaret. A girl who Margaret. christens herself Elira Silvertongue because she's so good at lying all the time. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. I, <laughs> it's like may have identified with her a little bit. <laughs> it may have been like looking in a very flattering mirror. Because I, I only came to them after the well-made but terrible film. Huh. And I then, of course, went to the bookstore and got these beautiful editions of all three of the of the um, historic uh. materials books, which I'll send you a picture of after this because they're, they're gorgeous and I love them. But then reading them as an adult and loving them and then finding out that they are to some people what, for example, Catherine Kerr and Robert Jordan were to me when I was an early teenager mm-hmm. just blows my mind and makes me think, oh, wow, these people are more interesting than me because I had... <laughs> Because I had these kind of fairly basic uh, fantasy narratives, and you get this incredibly layered, super interesting, dense, rereadable thing. And I'm just like, ah, see, now, now I feel bad for me. <laughs> <laughs> Although I will, I will stand well, by the fact that uh, Catherine Kerr did reincarnation narratives over 14 incarnations all of which were playing mm-hmm. out similar stories with reincarnated characters, none of whom remembered, but you could see from a dramatic irony point of view. And yeah, 14-year-old Lucas's mind was blown at the time. Yeah. So yeah. Well, in 14-year-old Lucas's defense, for me, those books weren't as formative like The Golden Compass was, but I was maybe 11 when I read The Golden Compass, then 14 when I read The Subtle Knife. And then The Amber Spyglass didn't come out until I was 16. So, like, it's more staggered. And therefore, my formative ones are actually the Tamara Pierce books because those were all published when I was 10. And so I was able to read, like, 12 of those right in a row. And those are perfect. And I would never (laughs) say a word against them. But they are not sophisticated. Exactly. Um, it is great world building, but it's very straightforward, semi-medieval fantasy. See, I can, I can think, though, with, with the, the Philip Pullman books, that as they were staggered in that way, therefore they got more sophisticated as you got more sophisticated. It's the Harry it was Potter very, effect. Yeah. Except actually correct. <laughs> like, I have a lot of beef with the Harry Potter books. I also grew up with those, sort of. I think I was 13 when the first one was published, but maybe 14 when I read the first one, 15, at the peak of my obsession, 16 through 18 remained a pace. And then college, which is basically like books five, six, and seven, just like really, really disappointed me. See, again, that was a series I didn't get to because it really only hit big in Canada when I was in my last year of high school. And so my little sister was reading them. But I was like occasionally seeing it in the newspaper as, oh, this big phenomenon of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. And look at this. And uh, then we're watching the first movie and finding it very twee because, again, I didn't know the story. I'm just like, okay, oh, it's all this kind of silly stuff, and I won't read it. So then read them. It was a very bad movie. It was. (laughs) I'm weird about the Harry Potter movies. I have unpopular opinions, but uh, that's for another Um, time. What's your unpopular opinion? Is it that the third movie is the best one? Uh, It's that the uh, Prisoner of Azkaban is terrible. Oh, that is the wrong opinion. I know. The thing is, I know it's the wrong opinion. I still stand by it because... I remember watching it, and the whole second half of that movie is people yelling exposition to one another. <laughs> I mean, 
That's going to happen in most. <laughs> no, I mean, like, to the point where it's like you've got Gary Oldman and David Thewlis, who are both very good actors, each pointing a wand at Wormtongue, and they're just shouting the reveal of the story at one another. I'm like, you guys, y- you know the story. You were there. You're shouting it for the benefit of the audience. And it, uh, the thing is, the, I under- yes, the book is better in that particular aspect, but I found that part of the movie to be not great. And again, also, I was working in a bookstore when every Harry Potter from the Order of the Phoenix on out came out. I was in bookstores, and I had to dress up as Hagrid. I'm not particularly tall, <laughs> and I didn't have a beard then, but I still had to dress up as Hagrid. So I went to my libraries all of the time, but my taste was actually formed by this one children's bookshop, literally called The Children's Bookshop. I was going to say, if you said um, the shop around the corner, I was going to be <laughs> very impressed. Like, the shop around the corner wishes it were as good as The Children's Bookshop. And the fact that it isn't, and the fact that it is very clearly to me an adult's idea of what a children's bookshop would be like and an adult's idea of what a children's bookseller would be is one of the major beefs that I have with You've Got Mail, which is an inferior film. It's my most controversial opinion. Children's bookshop, Terry was not, she never talked down to me, and I don't know that she especially likes children, but she loves children's books and she takes them deadly seriously and her taste is and was impeccable and so she found every book that I was supposed to read and she was like my I was her acolyte and I I got to the point where I was 15 and I would just come and I would sit in the bookshop and when she got bored hand selling something to somebody who just like wasn't cooperating she would just be like Margaret I'm sure you have some ideas (laughs) and And you went oh do do I (laughs) Do I ever. I would be happy to walk this person through the book section. (laughs) I knew her and her staff really well. So what she would have us do is it was like a really small operation. They only had a few people. But for the midnight book sellings, my friends and I would come in costume and we would just entertain the line. And she would just pay us in free copies of the book. Oh, my God. And I would be, because my mom's hoarder blood, and also because like she and I are both very good at repurposing things, like we were costume central. So I would just recruit my friends, and they wouldn't have any idea what they were dressing up as. And I'd be like, okay, look, I've got like a bunch of scarves here. Jonathan, like, come here, I'm going to drape you in these, and you're going to be Professor Trelawney. And he'd be like, I don't want to be a girl. And I'd be like, deal with it. <laughs> you're Trelawney. And I remember vividly, I think for the fifth book, Jonathan and my friend Roger having a fight over, we had like one mask that was one of those um, Crypt Keeper masks that you could pull over your face and it was just a blank right. where your face should be. And that was obviously the Dementor. One of them was going to be the Dementor and one of them was going to be Trelawney. And like Roger won out and he got to be the Dementor and he spent the entire night just being poked viciously by like spoiled 10-year-olds in this wealthy suburb <laughs> who would just come up and say like, expect a Patronum and like poke him with this fake wand and like the Dementors don't talk. It's like he couldn't respond, so he would just, like, drift away, and then they would find him, and they'd poke him again. Whereas Jonathan just completely dined out on his Trelawney costume. He was telling everybody's fortunes. Everybody loved him. He was the head of the night. So, just goes to show you. And I'm sure I'll have that, that kid on when I have a podcast called Trauma Corner. <laughs> talk about his terrifying experience as a Dementor. And actually, just before we wrap up, Margaret, what would be your Patronus? Probably my late Jack Russell Terrier, Henry. He, we adopted him when I was 10, and he was, we'd had a caisson, which is like a, in the husky family, they look like big gray and black puffballs. When I was little, but caisson was actually, Gizmo was our, my parents' first child. 
like he predated me and my brother and so like he never had any time for the kids he was fanatically devoted to my mom and he really looked at us as just like interlopers but he was extremely well behaved just like a very good dog well trained intelligent respectful he died when I was six and then we didn't have a dog from six to ten we were dogless you you lived a dogless existence from six to ten <laughs> I lived, it was it was very hard for me Lucas and my mom vividly remembers it was like around Thanksgiving one night my brother and I just like sobbing saying we just want a dog for Christmas and as uh, she went to walk around the pond which is like a reservoir in our neighborhood the next day. And on her way there, she saw a dog who was lost and she recognized it. And she was like, oh, well, I'll just take this dog on the walk with me and I'll bring it home when I'm done. And while she was on this walk, she met this very nice, just sort of like well-dressed older couple. And they had a very nice sort of like old golden retriever who was very well behaved. And then they had this just like crazy rambunctious Jack Russell Terrier who was with them. And they were clearly exhausted by this dog. And she started up a conversation with them. And she found out that this dog, Henry, was actually up for adoption. That he was from a broken home. His parents had adopted him as a puppy. And then they had split up and neither one of them wanted him. So he'd gone to the woman's parents and they were like looking to get rid of him. And my mom was like, well, it's destiny. We're obviously meant to adopt this dog. And she brought my dad over to meet him. And Henry sprinted into the room, leapt into my dad's lap, and like planted his paws on his chest and started licking his face. Oh my God. So like they were done. So (laughs) Henry was adopted. And this was before Wishbone was a thing, which is the TV show on PBS with the Jack Russell Terrier reenacting classic history. It's also before The Mask. Like Jack Russell's were not in vogue yet. But then suddenly they were, and we had the coolest dog. Was it pre-Fraser? I think it was contemporaneous with Fraser, but I think Fraser was the beginning of that trend, and then it blossomed out bigger. Oh yes. And he was terribly badly behaved. He looked at bicycles as his mortal enemy. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is it with dogs hating things with with wheels that aren't cars? I mean, they hate cars a lot of times too. Because <laughs> I mean, our first dog was a Rottweiler named Thumper. <laughs> He hated skateboards. Uh, my dad would have to like haul this 140 pound dog off the sidewalk whenever someone went by on a skateboard. It was something about the sound and the reverberation between the sidewalk and the board. And this was the most placid dog that would just go crazy at that sound. I think it's also sort of thinking about the way that they move. Then like moving at a speed that prey also moves at, but moving in a way that prey shouldn't be able to, like the smoothness of the glide. Yeah, so it, it hits the dog uncanny valley. Exactly, exactly. But he's absolutely, he would be my Patronus, and he would fuck up any Dementors that tried to mess with me. Considering that my current dog is half Jack Russell, I'm picturing that persistent chase and the nipping at the heels. (laughs) I didn't know that about Junior, and it explains so much. Yeah, he's half Jack Russell, half Minnie Dachshund. It explains so much about how much I adore him. And, and also why he loves a ball and chasing anything and his oh single-mindedness. God. Yeah. <laughs> we also had a an indoor-outdoor cat named Thomas who looks a lot like your Bolin when we adopted Henry. They did not get along at first. Thomas, like, did not give a fuck about Henry. But Henry recognized Thomas as prey. And we finally managed to get them to like each other because we would feed them at the same time. Okay. And, like, Thomas also, like, managed to scratch Henry's cornea and, like, he got in line. <laughs> So Thomas was like the one cat Henry wouldn't chase and Thomas would let Henry just like gnaw on his neck. But Thomas, when we would go on walks with Henry late at night, liked to do this thing where he would walk with us and he'd start out sort of like parallel to Henry and Henry would be like, oh great, it's me and Thomas, me and Thomas, me and Thomas, this is cool. And then Thomas would just sort of drift back 
And I'd be like, all right, I'm, I'm walking by myself. I'm walking by myself. I'm smelling things, smelling things. And then Thomas would dart forward. And Henry would be like, oh, my God, it's a cat. It's a cat. It's a cat. And he would start chasing. <laughs> and then he'd get up. And he'd be like, oh, no, it's just Thomas. Yeah, we're cool. And then would be like, Thomas cool. and I are walking together. And then Thomas would just prank him again. <laughs> just the entire walk. I'm just picturing Rita and Runt. <laughs> exactly. I think that that's a major, a major touchstone for how I imagine the two of them talking to each other. Excellent. All right, Margaret, well, since we'll wrap up, <laughs> where can people find you on the internet? Uh, they can find me personally at Mrs. Friday Next on Twitter. They can find my newsletter at Two Bossy Dames on Twitter or at tinyletter.com slash Two Bossy Dames, and that's spelled out T-W-O bossy dames and finally they can find my television podcast at atv podcast on twitter or at atvpodcast.com where you can find an array of custom cocktails named for each of the hosts designed by one lucas brown oh, charmer <laughs> well thank you for that shout out and this has been a great conversation Thanks once again to Margaret H. Willison for her time. I was inspired by her childhood library exploits in the creation of this week's signature cocktail and dubbed it the Silver Tongue Martini. Rather than the usual 8 to 1 or 4 to 1 measures of a gin martini, this combination uses equal measures of vermouth and gin. Start with 1.5 ounces of botanical gin. I prefer Hendrix, Westwinds, or Sipsmith if you can get it, with 1.5 ounces of extra dry vermouth. Combine it in a glass of ice or a shaker if that's your preference. Add one dash of Angostura bitters or West Indian orange bitters. I use Fee Brothers. Shake or stir until the outside of the vessel has frosted over, then strain into a chilled martini glass. Garnish with a long piece of lemon peel that you've twisted over the glass to release the oils. This daily concoction will take the edge off of any social gathering, even if it's only on social media. Enjoy! The Math of You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. If you'd like to be a guest on The Math of You, simply send us an email at themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us why you'd like to be on the show. Follow us on Twitter at themathofyou, and if you want to follow my wacky adventures, you can follow me at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D on Twitter or Instagram or Lokified82 on Snapchat. Next week, I'll be talking to Camille Washington of the Unfriendly Black Hotties podcast about the wonder of scholastic book orders, among other things. Join me, won't you? Preserving the old ways from being abused Protecting the new ways from being few What more can we do? Breakfast sandwiches. Breakfast sandwiches. Oh, see, that's the thing is, I until I came to Australia, I was not as big of a fan of the breakfast sandwich because I didn't like eggs. It took it took me getting like the equivalent of the full English breakfast to have enough other things that I like to go with the eggs that use the eggs as a carrier of flavor. And now I like scrambled eggs, and that's fine. So for me, the the classic bacon and egg roll, which is the the uh, over easy fried egg 
mm-hmm. with uh, with bacon and usually barbecue sauce for me, and occasionally cheese and some green stuff. So like some rocket or some. Well, I suppose for you it would be um, arugula, but rocket is much cooler. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, some rocket or like a little bit of wilted spinach on that, and I mean maybe. And here's where I'm gonna lose you a dash of mayo. Yeah, you have lost me. Mayonnaise is just <laughs> it, it. I can't fathom it. I mean, I think it's probably because my brother didn't like it. So we never really had it around the house, so it didn't ever get, you know, organically incorporated into my life. So the first time I'd encounter it is at the end of like a sandwich bar, a salad bar. It's just like a quivering mass in one of those aluminum tins, Ugh, just like no, like sitting there, just like like oiling ominously. See, I was like that with coleslaw for a very long time until oh, I coleslaw. had to eat coleslaw. Mm. I'll eat because coleslaw like, without mayonnaise, but again, most coleslaw is drenched in mayonnaise, and then it's just like the devil's pile. <laughs> um, it's funny, people people get so ride or die for mayonnaise, where it's like, um, I remember listening to a podcast uh, with a guy named Justin Robert Young on it, and he loves mayonnaise, and he's like, you can never get people in California, because he lived in Florida before, and then he moved to California, and he's like, you never get people in California to give you what you, when you say, I want a lot of mayo on this. They think, oh, he wants a couple of lines of mayo. He's like, no, no, I, I want a lot of mayo. And the way he found to actually get them to give the correct amount of mayo was to say, I want so much mayonnaise, you think it might be a joke. <laughs> like, I, I, I want a comical amount of mayonnaise. And he's like, it, it was a bold move, but I'll tell you what, when the sandwich came back, it had the right fucking amount of mayo on it. <laughs> <laughs> um... Whereas I just have the opposite problem. I couldn't even eat sandwiches in England because even if you told them not to put mayonnaise on it, either mayonnaise or butter would always end up on it. And even in places where, like, no normal human would think to put that condiment, like on a caprese sandwich. <laughs> no. What? Yeah. Why? I don't. Why are you doing that? I don't know, Lucas. I Actually, I, I might be able to tell you because I, I did see this. I got it. Who was I talking? I think I was talking to Camille about um, cooking, instructive cooking shows. And <laughs> I talked about like watching, I think it was from like the Oliver's Twist era, Jamie Oliver show, where he talked about packing sandwiches for a picnic. And he was doing like this amazing clubhouse sandwich, which when I got to Australia, they didn't have them here. You asked for a club sandwich and you got like a chicken sandwich with some bacon on it. It's like, no, you got to have the three slices of bread. You got to have the right, like, balance of things but what he did is that if you're packing them for like a lunch later if you put butter or mayonnaise even thinly from edge to edge it, it serves as a barrier once it's sealed to stop the bread from getting soggy hmm. so i could see that in practice when you're like making sandwiches that are going to maybe sit on a um like a counter or something waiting for people to buy them a large amount of butter or mayo will keep that sandwich from getting soggy Ugh, you know what's worse than soggy bread <laughs> but you're gonna say mayonnaise yeah i absolutely <laughs> am going to say mayonnaise especially stealth mayonnaise on a fucking caprese sandwich is this a clean <laughs> podcast or can i swear hell no curse it up <laughs> okay thank god i can do i can do clean podcasting if i need to but i would prefer not to